I have to be delusional enough to think people are going to listen to this. It's thunderstorming outside. There's lightning. Hit me with it. Come on. How smart can you be when you have huge mantids? Okay, Behem. Go put your pronouns and go sit in the corner. I'll take care of this. It's just common sense. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Common Sense, an anonymous podcast. Today's conversation is with Bowtide Mahi, a seven-figure Amazon seller who has helped hundreds of people start their own Amazon reselling businesses. Thank you so much for watching, and if you enjoy the conversation, please like and subscribe. You can find my guest's information in the description box below, and if you really enjoy the conversation, please consider becoming a member to support my channel. Anyways, let's get into it. Hello, Mr. Mahi. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. It's a, it's a nice Thursday afternoon. Certainly can't complain. Life is good. So really appreciate you taking the time to come back onto the podcast. For those listening, Mahi came back on the podcast like six months ago now, and we did a deep dive into arbitrage then, but we'll be revisiting some of those topics today. So I guess first question, what is retail arbitrage? Sure. Arbitrage as a whole is is the concept of buying something from one place and then selling it on another place where the value is higher. Uh, so to make a distinction, uh, retail arbitrage is in, in like the reselling space is more known as the, the idea that you're going into a physical retail store and buying inventory there. And what I do is more so online arbitrage where it's pretty much the same thing. You're buying from the same stores. You're just doing it online. Uh, in my case, it's on Amazon. Some people do eBay. There are people who specialize. If you do like clothing or shoes, you might branch out to like StockX or Mercari. But generally, it's going to be Amazon or eBay for most people. And so you sell everything on Amazon. Do you have a specific lane that you stay in? What are you looking for? So I'll truthfully, I'll sell anything where I can make a profit. Uh, I've tend to, I tend to shift my focus towards... Uh, high volume, low return rate products, mostly uh, beauty products, vitamins, supplements, grocery items, uh, and then apparel as well. And when I, when I say apparel, I mean uh, stuff like socks, hats, belts, things where you know it's it has a lot of the upside of selling uh, clothing and shoes where it's very volume friendly, uh, but it's the type of stuff where the return rates are much lower. So I tend to focus on stuff where I can sell a lot and the return rates tend to be pretty low. Even if I have to sacrifice a little bit of profit, uh, it's just a lot easier to do it that way. And so are returns a headache to deal with, or is it just the time that's lost? Like, What's so burdensome about returns? I'd say it really just depends on what types of items that you sell. Like In, in most cases, when an item gets returned, uh, usually you can just send it back into Amazon. It, it really... There, I mean, you occasionally get some customers who completely trash the item before returning it, or they return something that isn't even the same thing that they bought. But there is <laughs> there is recourse for that. You can, if you have all your documentation in order, you can submit cases to Amazon support. And if you have all your documentation, you have all the data to say, hey, the customer fucked up, uh, then you can get reimbursed for that. It's more so that it is just a big time sink. And also, it does cut into your margins. You know, even if let's say a customer returns an item and it gets sent back to you, but it's in good condition and you can send it back in, you still have to pay another round of Amazon fees. You have to pay for it to be shipped back to Amazon. 
And then when you actually sell it, you have to do uh, more FBA selling fees and then the fulfillment fee. So even if you get that item back and you can sell it again at the same price you initially sold it at, you still have to pay those fees a second time. And that's why the shoe sellers really get burned is if they sell a shoe like three or four times, they're paying three or four rounds of FBA fees. And if they were shooting for 25, 30% return on investment with that pair of shoes, by the fourth time you sell it, you're, you might not even be making a profit at that point. That makes sense. And so how well can you predict what the return rates are going to be? Um, I think a lot of it is just based on experience and in terms of the category of item itself. Uh, so one of the reasons I love vitamins, uh, supplements, and grocery items like snack foods, baking stuff, things of that nature, is the fact that uh, those are the types of items that in most cases, Amazon just doesn't let you return those items. So it's pretty much once you make the sale, it's final. Like that, that's, you know, that box of cheese that's isn't coming back. So that's one of the, that's one of the reasons I like those categories. Even if you're only making $3 a sale, $4 a sale, if you can sell a couple hundred of those items every single month, I don't have to worry about it ever coming back. So I like to focus my attention towards those categories. And then when it comes to apparel, so stuff like socks, hats, things of that nature, uh, there definitely are some returns. I think my return rate on those types of items is like four to 5%, which, you know, it's not the worst. It's definitely not shoe sellers. Shoe sellers get burned so bad. I don't know if you sell shoes, you're kind of a masochist in my opinion, <laughs> but th there is certainly money to be made in that niche, but it's way too much of a headache for me. I'd say that one of the biggest, uh, one of the highest ROI things I've done in my business the past two months is I actually onboarded a second prep center that specifically deals with returns. So now when I get returns, it just all goes to them. And if it could be sent back into Amazon, they'll send it back into Amazon for a fee. If it's not in resellable condition, or at least not to where it could be sold on Amazon as brand new, uh, they are partnered up with a consignment company. So basically they'll give it over to the consignment company and then they'll sell it on eBay and then they'll give me 50% of whatever they sell it for. So I'm paying a little bit more out of pocket for them to, to deal with it, but there's no longer a death pile in my living room. So it's better than just letting all the returns stack up. That's awesome. So when you say a prep center, what exactly does that mean? Sure. So prep center is a very common thing in the Amazon space where it's basically a third-party logistics company. You send your inventory there or you or, like when you buy something off like walmart.com, for example, instead of having it ordered to your house, you order it to the prep center and then the prep center will uh, do whatever prep is needed for the item and then they'll send it to Amazon for you. Like if it's, if it's something that comes in a box, usually it's just like putting a label on the box. If it's something like a hat or socks or something, they might put it inside like one of those clear poly bags uh, to make sure like it doesn't get damaged or something like that. And they basically will create your FBA shipments for you. And they'll they'll sort of do all that for you. Uh, the average uh, rate for a prep center is $1.50 to $2 per unit. So as you scale, you're paying a lot in prep fees, which is why I try to recommend if you're smaller, you know, try to hold off going that route as long as you can, unless you actually don't have time. Not... I don't want to put the time in, but you actually don't have time. As in like you have too many products that you literally could not prepare and package and send them out the door. 
in a timely manner based on when they're ordered. Yeah. And it really, here's the thing. When people think of an Amazon FBA business, what people picture in their minds is my virtual assistants source the items. The items go to the prep center. The prep center sends them to Amazon. And then I don't have to do anything. But that's just not really how it works. I mean, granted, you can get to that point, but you have to have the proper infrastructure in place to actually get there, which most people don't. They just, they want to outsource all the work without knowing how to do it. And they're almost certainly going to fail if they try that. Okay, so let's hop into that topic then. So I think first, let's start with like FBA versus FBM. So fulfilled by Amazon versus fulfilled by merchant. Can you just give us an example of like you're buying makeup? What's the difference between buying makeup that's fulfilled by Amazon and one that is fulfilled by merchant? Sure. So fulfilled by merchant is when instead of sending like a big shipment of like, let's say, 100 units to Amazon, basically instead you're shipping individual orders directly to the customer yourself and you're buying shipping through, uh, depending on the item, whether it's through the postal service or through UPS, you're handling all the orders yourself and you're shipping them out. So again, going back to what I said earlier, when everyone thinks of selling on Amazon, they think, oh, I just send all my stuff to Amazon and they do all the work. It's great. And that is true to an extent. But the one thing that people don't realize is the amount of time that it takes from when you actually buy that item to when it's fully stocked at Amazon, ready to be shipped in two days for a customer to buy it. So just to give you some perspective on the timeline, I'd say on average, when you do an FBA shipment, when you send the item in, on average, it takes about, let's just say three to five days for your shipment to be from your house to the actual Amazon fulfillment center. And let's say it sits there for like another day or two, and then it starts getting checked in. So a week from when you send in that shipment, now your stuff's getting checked in, but that's not where it ends. Once your stuff is checked in, then it has to go through something called a fulfillment center transfer. And basically what that means is Amazon is going to be redistributing your inventory across the country. And the reason they do that is so that there's always at least one unit in stock somewhere that is close enough to every customer in America to where they are, at least in the mainland United States, to where they can get that item shipped to them in two days. So they might have, so let's say like you're in Georgia, for example, if you do an FBA shipment, they might send all of that inventory to Charlotte, North Carolina, but they're going to redistribute that inventory all the, all the way across the country. And on average, that can take another week or two. So as a conservative estimate, it's a, you know, it's about four weeks from when you actually purchase the item to when it's done being transferred and it's up for sale. So the time lag from when you buy it to when you can sell it on Amazon is on average about three to four weeks. So the reason that Fulfilled by Merchant is so powerful is the fact that you don't have to do any of that waiting. If you have the inventory on hand, you can list it, sell it, and ship it out all in the same day. And that really, not only does it help you get your money back faster, but it also accelerates your learning curve. Another thing that people don't consider is how you get paid out by Amazon. So you d you aren't eligible to be paid out from an Amazon order until two weeks after the item has been shipped to the customer. So if we think back to what I just said, on average, it's about four weeks from when you buy the item to when it could be sold on Amazon. That means when you buy that item, you're not getting that money back for at least six weeks. And that's assuming you sell it immediately. Mm. So the reason that Merchant Fulfilled is so powerful, especially in the beginning, 
is you don't have to wait six weeks to get your money back. You can get the inventory today. You can list it today. You can sell it today, ship it out today, and you can see that money back in two weeks. And people don't want to hear that because they don't want to get off their ass and work. But the reality is if you want to grow quickly, that's going to be the way to do it because you get your money back faster. You sell stuff faster. You learn faster. It just it accelerates your learning curve massively, which is why I think it's such an underrated strategy that most people don't want to do because they're lazy. And so the reason why Fulfilled by Merchant is more work than Fulfilled by Amazon is because you have to purchase the product, package the product, and send it to the end customer versus for Fulfilled by Amazon, you purchase the product and you ship it to Amazon and you're done. Yeah. I mean, if we're being honest, the the amount of work that it takes to prep an item for FBA versus FBM really isn't that big of a time difference. Like, let's say that I'm selling a uh, let's just say that I'm selling like some random makeup product to prep it for FBA. I put a sticker on it and then I put it in the box to prep it for FBM. I put it in a bubble mailer and then I slap the shipping label on it. So the FBM order takes like an extra 15 seconds because you have to print the shipping label. But uh, you got to calculate that into the cost. I'm just kidding. Yeah, uh. <laughs> it's really not that big of a difference. It's just that people people have this whenever people I think that this is partially the gurus are partially to blame for this, I think is when they pitch selling on Amazon is like this thing where it's like, oh, Amazon does everything and you just make money for no work. And, you know, that's, that's not really how it works. But I, people sort of have that image implanted in their minds. And it's not like you can't get to a point where you're mostly removed from the business, but you need to spend a lot of time building systems and training employees to actually get to that point. But people just want to put in a bunch of money and then just you know, again, like I said before, they want to make a bunch of money for doing nothing. And that's just not how it works. And so I'm struggling to understand what's the benefit of doing FBA over FBM at all then. If it's same time investment, but you get your money faster, you learn faster. What's the benefit of doing FBA? FBA is much more, it's a lot easier to do at scale is really the big thing. For a store my size, I sell a couple thousand units a month. So if I was packing 100, 200 orders every single day, you know, that would be a pretty big time sink. But FBA makes it easier to sell a lot of items at scale. Another thing, too, is that most customers will prefer FBA as well because you have that two-day shipping. And depending on where you live, sometimes one-day shipping. So customers are always going to prefer that uh, as well. And another advantage to FBA is depending on the weight of the item or the, the dimensions of the item, uh, because you're purchasing shipping directly from the post office or from UPS or in some rare cases FedEx, if you're doing like some really heavy stuff like pools, um, there are some cases where if like an item weighs more than a pound, it might be more profitable to sell FBA because once you go over a pound, that's when the shipping can vary a lot. Whereas if it's like less than a pound, usually you're paying like four to six dollars for most stuff to ship it out. Whereas if once you go over a pound, then it goes anywhere from like nine to $15. And then that at that point, the FBA fees aren't as bad and you actually make more money selling FBA. So it's really a matter of FBA is better at scale. But the problem is that most people who want to do FBA aren't at the level where it makes sense for them to do it. And I'm not saying that you should only do FBM either. I just think it's important to mix it in when you're starting out because it just helps with cash flow. But there's nothing wrong with doing both. I do both. I do mostly FBA, but I still pack like 20 to 30 orders a day because like it's really not that much work. People just think it's a lot of work, but it's really not. 
Okay, that's helpful. And so if someone wanted to get started today, and let's say they say, okay, Bohatai Mahi said, let's do FBM. What is step one, two, and three? How do they get started doing this? The biggest hurdle with arbitrage, as is with any reselling endeavor, is you got to find products to sell. The method that I recommend is reverse sourcing, which is you're just going and looking at other sellers and seeing what items are they selling and then Googling them and seeing if you can find them profitably. And that's not the way that you find the best items. But I recommend that beginners do it because it's the fastest way to expose yourself to as many brands and websites as you can. So when you're doing this, you know, you might only find like two or three products that might make you money. But in the process, you're going to look at hundreds, if not thousands of products of brands that you've never seen before. So what you can do is every time you find a new website, you sign up for their email list. And then eventually after you do that for like two weeks, Every morning, you're going to wake up to like 30 marketing emails that say, hey, we got 30% off on XYZ category today, or hey, we're having a 30% off site-wide sale. So it's sort of exposing yourself to a lot of different brands and categories and setting yourself up to be able to take advantage of short-term opportunities. The reality is that sourcing products is simple, but it is not easy. You have to build up a lot of experience to have an idea of what you're looking for. And that's where most people get stuck is they're not used to putting in 10 to 20, 30 hours and not seeing results. But that's just how it works. My When I first started selling books back in 2021, it took me two weeks to find my first, uh, like my first book shipment, which was like, I think 12 books. And I only made like $60 off that shipment. But I, what I learned in those two weeks, I was able to learn from my mistakes and that helped me build better processes and better systems for how to find the types of books that I wanted to sell. And it's just about building up a lot of experience. And that's really what it comes down to is you can't, people want shortcuts, but there is no shortcut because putting in the time is the only way to get better. And so when you find a product that is a good opportunity for arbitrage, how long is that product a good opportunity? Do you still have products you found two years ago that you're still reselling? And so every found product, it's like an exponential growth type of thing where you're just compounding on top of each other. Or do certain products get more competitive? The profit margins get eroded. What's kind of the trade-off? You're constantly looking for new products all the time. So I think it mainly depends on, it depends on a couple of factors. I would say that most items are not profitable forever because when you're buying a lot of these items, they're usually, you're usually having some sort of discount. Like you're using like a coupon code or maybe there's a sale going on or maybe like the website that you're do, you're buying from has like a deal, like it's buy one, get one 50% off. A lot of arbitrage is taking advantage of these limited time discounts and sort of trying to stack them on top of each other. So because of that, for a lot of these products, the price that you're purchasing the item at, it's not going to always be available at that price. So it really comes down to, you know, tracking those items and tracking those websites and seeing when those sales are going on and taking advantage of those short-term opportunities. Now, granted, there are some items where there's sort of a ceiling on how cheap you can get them. So it's not going to be like that. And for those items where the, the price is sort of capped at like, this is the cheapest price you could possibly buy the item at. In those cases, those items will get saturated to an extent. But the thing about, most Amazon sellers is they have the memory of a goldfish. So <laughs> if, 
if an item tanks, if the price tanks super hard and there's like 50 new sellers, if you come back to that item in three months, most of the people who lost money on that product probably forgot about it. You could probably sell it again. So it really depends. I would say in certain niches, yes, there are a couple of products here and there that you'll be able to sell over and over again. But the real money is made in capitalizing on short-term opportunities. But the good thing is that if you're smart and you like to track stuff, you can sort of notice a pattern of these short-term opportunities happen periodically and you can come back to them over and over again. Like, for example, this is actually the timing on when we're doing this is actually quite funny. So the last time we spoke, there was a 20% off site-wide Sephora sale, uh, like the week, either a week or a week after uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we had that conversation where it was, they only do that sale twice a year. It's 20% off everything. And it applies to brands that are usually never on sale. Mm -hmm. um, so funnily enough, they did another one last week and I went to town on that. <laughs> That's a sale that I've known about for over a year. I know they do it every six months. So I had time to plan in advance and build a list of, all right, when this sale goes live, here's a list of 30 products I'm going to be looking at and see what the, the data looks like. And if it looks good, I'm going to buy a lot. Uh, I think I purchased, there were three products that I purchased 300 units of each, which should be about like a two month supply. I think I probably could have bought more, but I have uh, issues with going too deep because it's just very hard psychologically to buy like 500 of something. Mm -hmm. I, I already had like, I already had to overcome buying more than 100 of something earlier this year. So I'm, <laughs> I'm sure we'll get there, but, but really the the whole point of that is you'll start to notice patterns of like, all right, this website has sales every like three weeks. So I'm going to start building a list of items that this website sells that when they do another sale, that's going to be a good item. So technically, no, there aren't, I, there aren't a lot of items that you're able to sell over and over again. But if you're able to notice patterns and sort of track items, when those sales come around again, you'll already have a list of items of stuff you can potentially buy. So you mentioned that makeup is one of your key products. So that's why Sephora makes sense. Do you recommend someone focus in a couple different categories like that to really understand the brands that are in the space, the websites that have these sales? Or do you think early on, find any opportunity that looks good and go after it? So the reason that I was able to gravitate towards beauty and vitamins, it wasn't exactly by choice. Like three years ago, I knew absolutely nothing about makeup. Um, now I know way too much about makeup. That being said, it really, I didn't do that on purpose. I just started out grinding, looking for anything I could sell profitably. And it just ended up being that the path that I led, I was led down and the different stores that I was looking at, they just happened to be selling a lot of beauty and, and some vitamins. So it was just, I just happened to end up that way. I think what you need to do is just cast a wide net and just try to find stuff that you can sell profitably. And then over time, you'll sort of have a, you'll recognize like, okay, these are the types of items I've been having success with. Let's go a bit deeper. Let's try to find out, okay, these are the brands that I do well with. What websites sell these brands? Which of these websites have coupon codes? Which one of them offer discounts? Which ones have reward programs? And how often do they have sales? So that way you're sort of building, uh, you're sort of learning the market for that niche. So, and that's very helpful because you know, one person might find a product that you sell, but they might find it on a website that doesn't do discounts, but you're buying it for a website that does do discounts and you only know about it because you went out of your way to do that research. 
And that's really what it that's really what it's all about is it's about building a knowledge base over time on just whatever types of items you're having success with. Like there are people who exclusively sell electronics. I know nothing about electronics, but they do because they just happen to find profitable electronics. So now they know, all right, well, I've been selling electronics for a while. So here are all the websites that sell them. Here are the ones that do discounts. And then every four months, this website does 50% off on this type of product. And I'm just going to go deep on that because I know that's the cheapest price that I'm going to be able to get it at for the next four months. It's all about just knowing your market specifically. And I'm not going to say you should focus on XYZ category because depending on what steps you take when you're doing product research, you could end up on a completely different path than I did. And you might have success with, you know, certain categories that I've never touched, like, like outdoor gear or uh, pet supplies or stuff like that. Yeah. It's just making me think also from like the position of Sephora or these other retail stores online. So you're buying it at a discount during a sale, then you're selling it at its typical price. Correct on Amazon. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm selling it at, retail price it really depends on the listing uh and where what brands like i would say some brands you are able to get it discounted a lot and you are able to sell close to the retail price there are also other brands where it is being sold at like a 20 to 30 percent mark of of what you could buy it directly from the brand itself that's not really something you can control as an amazon seller what you really you're just looking at all right can i buy this at a profitable price and that's really all that matters to you uh, it does work out some way that sometimes you are able to sell an item for less than retail price to make a profit, but that's not really by design. That's just, you just look at the current state of the market and you say, all right, where can I fill the gaps and make money? So then when you say I need to find products that I can sell for profit, what price are you using to calculate that retail price? Basically, there's a tool that most sellers use is called SellerAmp. And basically one of the features that it has is it has a profit calculator. So it'll show you the price that the item is currently selling for. And then in the back end, you can put like, I want my minimum profit is $3. My minimum ROI is 30%. So what it'll do is it'll show you like, all right, this is the price that it's being sold at in order to meet your $3, 30% ROI requirement. This is the highest price that you can get it at and hit your requirements. And then you can, go look up the product and see if you can get it at that price or lower. That makes sense. Um, and then how do you track all of this stuff? Do you have a method for this product sold well on this website? I've got 30 or 300 units of this in my warehouse. I sold them in two months last time. What's my next order going to be? What's kind of your methodology for that? Uh, so I use a lot of spreadsheets and, and some software as well. I wouldn't say that I have like the most organized system or the most refined system. I think a lot of it too is sort of based on feel and experience. Like you can read all of the data that you want, but you're not going to get a true feel for how stuff performs until you actually sell some units yourself. And that's just something that you pick up on over time. So if I buy like 20 units of something and I sell through those 20 units in a week, I'll say, okay, I'll just buy 80. Because typically when I restock products, I usually only want to buy like a month supply at a time. The main reason for that is, you know, in this uh, business model, you never know if you're just going to have a bunch of competition on one of your listings. Mm. So it's better to uh, it's better to not be too invested on certain listings unless like you have like a clear competitive advantage, but that doesn't apply to most people. Okay, that's interesting. So don't go too deep on any one product because... 
a flurry of sellers can come in and find that opportunity and then it's no longer profitable and you're stuck with 500 units of mascara on hand or something like that. To an extent, that's true. Uh, I would say the exceptions to that would be like the aforementioned Sephora sale, where it's, I know for a fact that sale is only happening every six months. So like for certain products, you might be able to get away with buying more. Um, but generally for most products, I usually only buy a month supply unless I'm confident that like the price that I'm buying it at is the lowest that it can possibly be for X amount of months. But it's hard to have that level of confidence because you really don't know where some people are getting their products. Like every month, I find like one new random Asian beauty supplier that has like brands that I sell and it's like mm -hmm. 10% cheaper than other websites that I bought from in the past. And it's, it's very, very weird. That's why I usually don't go too deep is just because the number one rule of selling on Amazon is never assume somebody's buy cost. Cause you really, you can't really know how cheap someone's getting it unless it's like certain brands. But for the most part, you can't really know how cheap someone is getting something. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking now towards like the ne next biggest sale of the year, which is like Black Friday, Cyber Monday. You don't have to share all of your secrets, but do you have a similar list of products that you are already ready to look for in terms of sales? How do you strategize for those two huge sale days of the year? Sure. So I think there's a big, there's a big misunderstanding on how to approach Black Friday and Cyber Monday. When it comes to December, when it comes to around this time of year, Q4, uh, one of the biggest pieces of Twitter propaganda that gets run, like gets paraded around is you, it's Christmas time, kids are buying toys, so you've got to sell a bunch of toys. And to that, I say bullshit. In Q4, there's going to be an overall increase in sales volume, no matter what you're selling. So the reality is to take advantage of Black Friday, Cyber Monday, just stick to what's already working for you. Like if you're already making profit or you're already making money on a specific product and you can get it for 20% cheaper on Black Friday, why wouldn't you just buy more of that? And that's why I think a lot of people get tripped up in, in seasonal periods of time is, well, more so in Q4 specifically because everyone gets tricked into like, oh, you have to buy Legos, you have to buy toys. That's going to be how you make your money. And it is true that people can make the can make money doing that. But if they aren't experienced in selling those categories, they're not going to know what to look for. So it's my personal recommendation that when Black Friday hits, don't try to go outside of your comfort zone too much. Stick to what's already working because chances are stuff that you're making money on today, you'll be able to get cheaper on Black Friday. So if you're already having success with that product, why not just buy more when it's available for less? Got it. And so basically, I imagine you have a list of beauty and vitamin products right now, or maybe you're slowly adding to it that you are ready on the day of Black Friday, on the day of Cyber Monday to buy a ton of. You're already prepared. Yeah. And that's really a big reason. Like if you you might see on social media where some of these guys are saying like, oh, uh, X sale happened today. I spent like $20,000 and you're probably looking at the website like, well, where do I start? Well, the reality is that the reason that people are able to spend so much money on these sales in short periods of time is because they already knew what they wanted to buy before the sale even started. They were doing their homework two weeks before that sale started and they built up a list of 50 items, 100 items that might be good when that sale drops. And that's how I spent $26,000 on the Sephora sales. I had a two oh. weeks notice of when it was happening. So I went and I looked through all my old spreadsheets. 
I looked at brands that I was familiar with and I built a list like, all right, these are the 30 products I'm going to be looking at when that Sephora sale starts. And I'm going to look, all right, does this look good right now? If I can get 20% off, if it does, all right, we're going to the moon, rev up the Amex. <laughs> you and Bowtie Bum must have a very tight relationship based on, it's not manufactured spend, but it's quite a good use of your spend, no? Yeah, there is definitely a lot of synergy between our niches to an extent. One thing I, I, I'm ashamed to admit is that I haven't taken full advantage of his stuff yet. I'm currently saving up for a house that I plan to buy next year. So I'm trying not to sign up for like 30 credit cards and destroy my credit <laughs> score. But once that once that goes through, uh, I will definitely be abusing that. Yeah. I think I think the only issue with it is at scale. Um, it's going to be difficult to sign up for so many cards at once. Because like for me and a lot of big sellers, like we're spending 50, 60, $70,000 on inventory a month. So it's very hard to consistently um, get those new cards and take advantage of those signup bonuses. But even still, like the flagship card for me, at least is the Capital One Spark business, which is 2% back on every purchase. So just through the amount of sheer volume, I'm able to get $1,200 to $1,500 a month in credit card rewards just for you know, spending a lot of money, but it is definitely true that there's a lot of synergy between what bum talks about and, uh, selling on Amazon. Cause you're really just buying a bunch of stuff. So at a smaller scale, uh, his stuff definitely works really well, but at scale, it is a bit more difficult to take advantage of, uh, those credit card signups. Interesting. So these seem to be the two niches that are the most, I don't want to say they're foolproof, like bowtie bums kind of is foolproof like it's literally step one get this card step two spend this much money step three buy this thing so his is like very much if you follow what i say you will make money you cannot screw this up retail arbitrage requires a lot more skill than that but it does seem like a lower barrier to entry than say selling an e-commerce product or uh starting a online affiliate marketing website would you agree with that or do you think that maybe you should start in a different place and then end up at retail arbitrage you are right about there being a low barrier to entry it is very easy to open an amazon selling account it's very easy to you know buy and list an item on amazon i think the problem that most people run into is that even though it is simple it is not easy like you have to build the skill set to source products and that's where people get tripped up. But the reality is, is this is probably about as beginner friendly as a business model gets. The only caveat is that it is somewhat capital intensive. Like obviously, if you're only starting with $50, even if you double your money, like it's still going to take a while to scale that into something. Like I started with $300 in 2021. And over the course of about seven months, I cleared $10,000 in revenue. Net profit, I made like $2,000. So it's like, but as I, as you stay in the game for longer, that money compounds quicker because I went from $10,000 revenue in 2021 to $700,000 revenue in 2022. So it is capital intensive, but outside of that, I would say it's definitely one of the more beginner friendly business models out there. It's a very simple process. You just need to invest the time to get good at it. You can't just dump money into it and expect money to come out. Like there is a lot of active learning involved. Okay, that makes a ton of sense. And I completely understand the capital intensive piece. I also wonder if it feels riskier to people because you are buying products. Like you could lose $1,000 if you screw up. Whereas 
with a, an affiliate marketing website, like you just don't make any money, you don't get traction and you wasted your time. So I think the capital intensive piece might be a bigger fear to people. So you really have to have at least some amount, like a couple hundred dollars that you're okay with losing effectively, which is just the poor versus rich mindset that Bote Bull will say. And even then, I mean, this is getting into a bit of like gray area, but if you buy something from Walmart and you list it FBM and it doesn't sell, like they have like a 45 day return policy. Mm-hmm. It's not like, it's not like, uh, it's not like when you're selling like a private label product or you're making your own e-com business, you can't just call up your supplier in China and say, Hey, can I send all this back? Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so there is like at, at a very, at a very small level, there really isn't that much risk because you can just return the product. Now, that being said, uh, if you're returning like thousands of dollars worth of inventory to Target at scale, uh, you're the reason why Target bans people. <laughs> um, but like at a very, very small scale, like there really isn't that much risk involved, even if you just need to like prove the concept. But uh, it is true. You do need to have a lot of capital invested. And that's why it's definitely not for like, it's not for somebody who's literally starting from zero, but if you have a couple thousand dollars that you want to invest in a business and you're willing to put the time in to learn, I'd say that's, that's what uh, arbitrage is probably more appropriate for. It's definitely not for everyone. Like if you have $0 and you need to start a business, it's probably not going to be selling on Amazon. It's going to be some sort of service-based business. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. And then I want to talk a bit about what you were just mentioning, like scaling. So you mentioned previously, like there's a decision between what you insource versus what you outsource. So it sounds like early on, you should be a one-man show. And then as you scale, you start to outsource certain parts of the business. What's your recommendation for what you should insource versus outsource? So I would say the first the first thing you should outsource is prepping products, uh, in my opinion. So obviously, I just talked about how... Um, FBM is much more advantageous because you grow quick and you get your money back quicker, but it gets to a certain point where it does get annoying packing a hundred, 150 orders a day or, or packing or prepping an FBA shipment of like 500, 600 units. Like I have very fond memories going back to like January, February of 2022, where I was staying up until midnight, putting stickers on soap and vitamins in my bedroom (laughs) and then dropping it off at UPS the next morning. I have very fond memories of doing that, but it got to a point where it was like, I just finished, I just put stickers on stuff for three hours and it was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Very fond. (laughs) Yeah, it was, the trenches build character. (laughs) And we're going back to the trenches on December 1st. Uh, (laughs) But that's probably the first thing you should outsource if you decide to outsource at all. Uh, that's that's like the highest ROI thing you could do is because obviously like putting stickers on stuff for an FBA shipment, like let's be honest, that's, that's $10 an hour labor. Like you should definitely avoid doing that if you can, especially if you're someone who is married and has kids and you only have, let's say, two hours a day to work on your business. If you're spending an hour a day, just putting stickers on stuff, that's, that's limiting your growth. And in that case, then yeah, you should probably look into getting a prep center or the, the more optimal option is if you have siblings or kids who are young and want to make money, make them do it. I paid my sister to to prep a lot of shipments back in the day. And now that she's off at college, um, she texts me saying that she misses working for me because she doesn't have money. (laughs) <laughs> but definitely prep is definitely the the first thing to outsource and then after that this is where we get into some controversial subjects 
So one of the reasons, one of the things that, that gurus try to sell to you, not all of them, uh, but some of them will be like, oh, I have my virtual assistants and they find items for me. And then the items go to the prep center and then I just sell the items and then I don't have to do anything. And I just get to sip my gay little drink in Bali and make $2,000 a month. Um, but I think that's the wrong way to go about it. People try to hire VAs in hopes that their business will be able to just run automatically without them. And that's just not true. Uh, it is true that you can build a team of virtual assistants that can take a lot of the work off your shoulders. But in order to get to that point, you have to invest months and months training them on how to do their jobs and making sure that they know what they're doing. And this is something that that Tetra talks a lot about. Like Tetra, our niches are not related in the slightest, but I know that he's legit when he because of the things that he says about hiring virtual assistants, because he he shares the same sentiment that I do, where it's you can't just hire someone from the Philippines and expect them to know what to do. You need to mold them into the type of employee that you want them to be. And most people don't do that. They just hire the first person they find on onlinejobs.ph and they say, okay, go source. And then three months later, the VA doesn't find anything good. And they're like, wow, this guy sucks. I just threw $1,500 down the drain. But that's just not how you have to go about it. Virtual assistants, you have to put the time in to train them and teach them how to do their job. And if we're being perfectly honest, like you really don't need virtual assistants to source products. There are a lot of high level sellers that source all their own stuff. Uh, so you really don't need virtual assistants to help with product research. You absolutely can if you can afford it, but you definitely don't need it. Now, I will say that at scale, having an admin VA is very good. Someone who can, um, update your cost of goods in your inventory software, someone who can reprice your shipments for you, someone who can uh, track all of your invoices, contact customer service if units are missing from an order. Like having someone to do all that stuff in the background is very helpful and is very high ROI. But again, you have to train them on how to do all that stuff. You need to build out documentation. All right, all right this is how you do your job. If you come across X problem, here's what you do. And you keep building on that documentation over time as you encounter new issues. So I get the bottom line is, yes, you can hire virtual assistants to help you run your business. But if you don't know how to do the work yourself, you're just throwing money into a pit, basically. Yeah. And from what you've described, the secret sauce of this business is the sourcing and understanding your category. If there's anything that you shouldn't outsource that I've learned in my line of work, it's not the um, stuff that is the core secret sauce, the stuff that you're learning, because that's information and knowledge you can bring into like the next level of the business as well. So it makes sense not to just like ship that out to random virtual assistants. But it sounds like this is in most cases never going to be turn it on passive income generator that it is described to be on Amazon, unless you really run it that way. I'd be interested to see like what Broke would say about that too, because I don't think he's sourcing products anymore. But what's your take on that? Because he's on a, a pretty big scale as well. Well, you can, tr you can absolutely train a virtual assistant. You can teach them everything you know and have them do it. That is yeah. how a lot of the really big guys operate. Uh, there's a guy called Trader Soros, who I have a lot of respect for. In 2022, I think, either 2021 or 2022, I don't remember, he did like eight figures in sales with a really big team of VAs, and he didn't do any of the sourcing himself. 
he but he taught all the VAs how to do it. It is 100% true that you can make the business run by itself and it can run effectively that way, but it only works with the high level guys because they know exactly what they're doing and they're able to translate that knowledge onto their employees. And that's why they're able to make it work. So someone like Broke, he has uh, like at least 15 years of, of experience selling online. So he can very easily translate what he knows onto someone else and have them do the work. The problem, like the, the, the character I was describing earlier of someone who just doesn't want to do any work is someone who only has like maybe one year of experience selling on mm. Amazon. So they're not going to be able to teach a VA how to effectively do their job and find really good items because they don't know how to do it themselves. And that's sort of the type of person that I was targeting when I was saying all that. A lot yeah. of these high level guys who do have it like that, like broke, who have a full setup of people running the business for them, they're only able to pull that off because they have the experience and they know exactly what to do and they're able to tell their employees exactly what to do. But most people who try to go this route after six months to a year in the business, they just don't know how to do that. And that's why I think they're wasting their money. And I, even me, I have three virtual, I have four virtual assistants. I have one admin VA and I have three sourcing VAs and they all do good work. But if we're being completely honest, I think if I never hired the sourcing VAs and I just got better at sourcing instead, I think I could have probably had a 200K month by now. But there's always a trade-off. Like you're growing other parts. You have other businesses that you're running now off of this. Like you're selling informational products. You're doing other things. So perhaps that time is better spent elsewhere. And eventually you'll get to 200. I don't know, maybe. Um, yeah, that's definitely another factor to consider as well. You're the brains behind the operation. So it sounds like you can never get away from actually learning how to source products. Big takeaway, the gurus are in shambles. They will never recover because they can't avoid that inalienable truth. You have to learn how to source the products on your own. We actually have a question from the audience that would like um, Bowtied Mahi to answer. How do you overcome the crappy UI of Amazon? Are there any apps or tips on listing products with multiple variants. Please tell Mahi that I love him. So I, I assume he, they're talking about variation listings. So typically uh, a problem that people come across is when they sell on like uh, apparel or clothing or something is there'll be like, let's just say on, for example, like there's four colors of this pair of shorts. Uh, and for one of the colors, for some reason, extra small isn't an option because no one has extra small in stock. So it doesn't, the listing technically doesn't exist. Uh, the way that you get around that is by using something called the variation wizard, Google it, and that'll help you add that back. Um, and also going, I'm just want to make a quick comment, uh, mm -hmm. purely out of spite. This doesn't add any real value, but going back to the gurus and shambles, uh, I saw a tweet from a guy who apparently uh, does coaching and said that he is switching from arbitrage to wholesale because he got banned from one website that he did a lot of volume with. And to that, I say, you fucking suck at selling on Amazon. So the insinuation being he didn't do particularly well with arbitrage. So he's switching uh, business models and that's why he's doing wholesale, not because he got banned. Well, he, the, the, this person claimed that this one website they got banned from was like 50 to 70% of their catalog. And I also, in the same like two month span, saw another tweet from him that said, I just had my best day ever. And it was like $2,000 in revenue. And also this person was selling coaching. So 
eh, I'm not going to say anything else. I'll, I don't want to get this uh, YouTube channel in trouble. <laughs> I don't think you will, but okay. Good to know. Good to know. Mahi's the real deal, everybody. Um, In that line of questioning, what's kind of the, the dream for Bowtie Mahi Enterprises? So you have your retail arbitrage business. You're starting to do the educational coaching content. Um, you have a very popular, you have several courses that are very popular. And then you're on the podcast. So you have different things that you're doing. What's like the dream end goal? Where do you want to be in five years? I haven't given too much thought to like where I want to be as a whole in five years. In terms of strictly the Amazon business, I think the goal is to eventually get to a point where I can consistently be like 250K to 300K a month in revenue. Uh, assuming like a conservative margin of around 10%, that's like 25, 30K a month in profit. Like I don't live in NYC or LA or Miami. I don't live in a super expensive area. So like 25 to 30K a month in net profit from the Amazon business alone, that's enough for me. In terms, <laughs> In terms of like what else would I do? I'm honestly not sure. I'm sure at some point in the future, I'll probably start another business, uh, but I just don't know what that business is. One thing that I will say is even though they don't make that much money, a couple of months ago, I re got recommended a bunch of videos about vending machine businesses. And I know that those guys barely make anything unless they own like a hundred machines, but man, it just looks like so much fun just taking the money out of machines. Right. That's totally relatable. I've always considered how much fun that would be. Um, one of my friends is obsessed with having a laundromat, like several laundromat businesses. The modern face of laundry, I don't know. But it seems like you just have the business bug. So then you'll just get this to a point where you are running it pretty. It's not your entire life anymore. And then you'll just do businesses for fun. That's effectively where uh, Ox is too. Seems to be the goal end state is where like business is just a game and you're just raking it in. Yeah, I think the biggest, the the hardest, like, I think the hardest obstacle is just going to be like finding something that's going to interest me. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I, I think that's thinking a bit too far ahead. I need to focus on what I'm doing right now and make sure that I uh, I don't fuck up. Great stuff. Let me check out my questions, see if there's any more from the audience. Anything else that you would want to discuss? I guess I'll, I'll leave it off with this. So ultimately, I want to frame it this way because I get a lot of people who say like, oh, I can't find anything profitable. I sourced for like an hour and I didn't find anything or I tried an entire week of sourcing and I couldn't find anything. And I just want to sort of reframe the way that you need to think about sourcing in order to be successful. Sourcing in itself is a skill. So like any other skill, when you start out, you're going to be really bad at it. So in order to not be really bad at it, you have to keep practicing and learning from your mistakes and getting better over time. Like um, one of the things I started doing once I quit my job, I basically replaced my morning meetings with golf and I'll be honest right now, I fucking suck at golf, but I'm getting better because I'm constantly putting in hours. I'm constantly practicing and I'm learning from my mistakes. And that's just how you have to approach it with really not just arbitrage, but any business or any skill or any endeavor that you put your mind to. Um, I think the rule, I forget the, the name of the book, but like there's a, a famous book that says like, if you want to be an expert in something, you need to have like 10,000 hours. Uh, so 
you know, if you if you only have like 10 hours in sourcing and you're complaining that you can't find anything, like that's not enough. Go source more. I have like a thousand hours of sourcing and, you know, there's still times where I'll sit down for like 45 minutes and I can't really find anything that I that interests me. You know, it's the scale you have to build upon it. It's not it's not just something that's going to come to you. You can't just like watch a tutorial and all of a sudden like you're not printing stacks like it's a skill you have to keep putting the time in keep getting better learning from your mistakes recognizing patterns start tracking stuff start tracking all right these are the brands that i can sell these are the brands that i can't sell these are brands where no matter how many times i google this brand i can't find anything profitable so next time that i see this product or i see a product from this brand i'm just not going to click on it because i already know that it's not going to be profitable it's a waste of my time you need to start tracking these things and that's how you accelerate your learning curve um, but at the end of the day, if you don't put the time in, then you're not going to learn how to source products and you're not going to make money. So I guess the bottom line is if you want to make money in this, you have to be willing to invest the time actually learning how to source and getting better. You can't just give up after putting in 10 hours and not having any success. That's not how it works. Do you think there's at any point where someone has not found success that they should cut bait on this form of Wi-Fi money? Like if they spent two weeks looking for a product and they seriously have not found one, okay, they're not set up for this. Or is this anyone can do this? You're just not putting enough time. Uh, I mean, it can, it depends. Like there are certain like mistakes that people make where like people just aren't using their time efficiently and they might like put themselves in a situation where they're looking through a storefront that just isn't going to have the type of items that they want to buy. And it, you know, in that case, they might not, but you know, it's really not that complicated. You just have to put the time in, like you're either doing something wrong or you're just not smart enough. And it's really hard to not be smart enough to figure this stuff out. The bleak, a bleak answer if you're not finding success, but honest answer. Um, This has been incredibly insightful as I knew it would be. So for those who are listening, where can they find more Bowtie Mahi? Where can they learn retail arbitrage? So the first place to go would probably be my Twitter, which is just Bowtie Mahi or X, I guess. Uh, I tweet three times a day. I usually tweet mostly informative stuff and then a couple shit posts mixed in here and there. I also have a Substack, which is linked on my Twitter where I have, I mostly do paid content now. But there's at least like 20 to 25 free articles. There should be enough information there to get you your first thousand dollars in sales. Um, but most of the stuff that I upload now is mostly paid, but there's enough free stuff out there to get you off the ground, in my opinion. Uh, I also have a course that I sell, which you can also find on my Twitter. Uh, if you let's say that you start selling on Amazon for a little bit, you get your feet wet, you get your first thousand dollars, two thousand dollars in sales. You say, wow, this is really cool. I think I can make this another income stream. I want to take it a bit more seriously Then the course is probably for you. Um, and I'd say that's probably about it. Perfect. And if you want more live talky content, we have another podcast that is on my YouTube channel and on Spotify for another deep dive into a similar topic with Bowtie Mahi. You can find it and I will link it below this conversation. But as always, an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on Bowtie Mahi and have a great rest of your day. Thanks. You too. Thank you so much for listening. This has been yet another episode of Common Sense. If you liked the conversation, please consider hitting that follow button on Spotify. Oh, and tell everyone you've ever met to do the same. 
And while you're feeling generous, why not subscribe to my YouTube channel? I promise I've ridiculed at least one of the identity groups you dislike. You have a great day now.